worship team. Is that true? Is there anything better than our God? No, oh, no, that's right. Correct answer, Devin. Good job. That's why he sits at the front. My name's Aaron Orr. I'm the church planning resident here at Hope Church. And in case you don't know, we'll say it again. Hope wants to plant 25 churches in 25 years. All right, that's right. There we go. Let's get fired up about that, right? We need more churches, but we need more churches who are going to make disciples, right? Within those churches. So it's a it's not a both and, it's a, it, it's, I mean, it is a both and, it's not an either or. And so we need that. We need churches who are going to plant churches and disciples who are going to make disciples who make disciples. And so that's what we're about. So I'm excited about that. Uh, sometime early next year, uh, we'll be kicked out of our nest and uh, we're excited about what God has in store. And so there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that I know you guys don't know about. Maybe you're curious about. There will be a time, don't worry, but we will put all that and it will be revealed and share more our heart about that and the vision and the mission and and exactly some more details about what's going on but until then just gotta wait so we've been in a series called rabbi right going through the sermon on the mount and today we're going to be looking at matthew chapter 5 and we're going to cover verses 27 through 30 so not a lot of verses but how many of you guys know jesus is not afraid to mix it up so, like, like he's going to hit on topics, and yes, he will go there. I mean, you know, just there's never a dull moment in some of the things that Jesus might say. So just, just for an example, today, like if I was to summarize what we're going to be talking about, it's basically adultery of the heart and self-amputation. And so, like, if you, if you just hear that, at least I got you interested now. At least you're, you're perked up like, what? What are we talking about? Well, it'll make sense. We'll get into it. But yes, Jesus is going to go there. But I hope through the spirit of the living God that we can make sense of these things. What's his heart? What is he trying to get us to fully understand? And so uh, let's, let's turn there. Let's look at it. So I'm going to start with verses 27 and 28. And it says this, and this is Jesus' words. He says, you have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So think about that for just a second, right? There's the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. I think it's number seven. I might be off on that. I'm pretty sure. Number seven, right? That's one of the big ones. Don't do that. Yeah, I shouldn't murder, maybe not commit adultery. Okay, yeah, I got, I got it. What I was thinking about when I was looking at this, I was like, but I tell you that anyone who looks, and this is guys and girls, man or woman, right? Mankind lustfully has already really committed the sin in here. And so Jesus is pointing everything to the internal and not so much the external. We love to focus on the external. And we're really good about seeing the external things about everybody else but, but us, right? We have our blind spots. We have these things that, that, that just kind of creep under the surface. And Jesus is going to go right to the heart, There's no room for pride. There's no room for, oh, man, I'm better than so-and-so and all these things. Like, no, we're all guilty in some form or fashion, and we all need him. And so that's where he's really just setting everybody up to say, you need me. I don't know if you know this, but you need me. The one talking to you right now, declaring these words of life. So you've heard it was said, but I say in your heart. And so I was thinking, why did Jesus need to make this point? 
have the commandment. They're like, what's the point of the point? And so it, it is possible to grasp the exterior and to get used to going through a certain motion, especially let's say like in that time, there's like cultural pressure, right? And maybe the, 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 the stakes were a little higher if you were caught in that act. And we can read about a story about where somebody that, that happened to them and Jesus, how he handled that very mercifully, right? Go and sin no more. Where's your accusers? They're not here. And so it's easy. Everybody gets riled up in this fervor. And it's like, yeah, stone her and, and do all these things. Like, well, you know, there's, there's two parties in this. Where are they? And where are the witnesses? And where's the corroborating evidence? And you're just dragging this here. And it's like, you're not following protocol and in your rage and in your zeal. And, and I know we can never relate to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the mobs and the crowd in that way. We can never, that can never happen to us. Well, we get swept up in emotions and we just go with the phone. It's like, yeah, like vengeance and justice. And there is a time for that. But let's take that big old plank out of our eye first. And so it's easy to have the exterior, the moral, but miss the heart. There is the letter of the law and that can kill. But then there's the spirit of the law that goes to the heart. And when we get that and when that's illuminated, that will bring life and it will light the whole body up. And so in verse 17, just to reference back, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I came to fulfill them. And that word fulfill there means I came to bring the law full of meaning, full of meaning, an overflow, full of meaning, the essence, the heart, the spirit. And how many of you know what was going on that day? There was a religious system based on God's commandments, but it had gotten out of control extremely legalistic. They made rules on top of rules on top of rules on top of rules. And they were full, so far removed from the heart and the original intent about thus saith the Lord. Now it was thus saith this rabbi and that rabbi and the head of the Sanhedrin and all these things and the teachings of the rabbis. And even to this day, this is in Judaism. It's called Takanot. These are man-made traditions. We, we have the, the midrashes and the teachings of the, of, of the rabbis and the teachers. And we hold these things in high regard just as much as the holy scriptures and the authority that they have. And when Jesus came, he said, no, this is not of God. I come, he's coming to strip all these things away, the man-made traditions and, and added things and say, let's get back to the heart of it all about what my father really desires. And this is what he came to do. And this is what he's pointing out. I want it to be full of meaning. Let's get it to the heart. And through him, hopefully we can write it on there. And so Jesus has drawn a distinction, a clear distinction between an action, a single action versus a behavior, a lifestyle, or a nature. And I don't want you to miss that. There is a difference between an act and a behavior and a nature. One can be a mistake. One can be a slip up and we all do that. The other is who you are who you are. And so it's more about who we are versus what we do at any given moment. And who we are is really determined by whose we are. 
Who we are is determined by whose we are. And so who are we? Whose are we? Right? Is God our father? There's another father. When he was talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, he told them who their daddy was. You are of your father, the devil. Hard-hearted, calloused, a form of godliness, a veneer on the outside. He calls them whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, but in the inside full of dead men's bones. And that will profit you nothing. Man looks at the outer, the God goes to the heart, the heart of the matter. And so how do we know whose we are? By our fruit. It's by your fruit you're going to know them. That's Matthew 7, 16. How is fruit produced? And I don't want you to miss these things. Oh, fruit, oh yeah, I did this action. I did this good work. I did these things. How is fruit produced? It needs to be connected to a source. It needs to be connected to a vine. And it needs to be abiding in that vine. And the nourishment that flows from that needs to go through. And then it will produce a fruit. So we're known by our fruit, but our fruit comes only from our abiding and our relationship and intimacy with God, with the creator. This is a heart issue. This is a relationship issue. We love to look at, I'll just try her. I'm just going to do this and these good works. And that's how we judge everything. But we can fool people, but we cannot fool God. In our religious systems and our structures, we can come here and we can sing, we can do all these things, but when we leave here, what is the state of our heart? Yeah, that's ouch, but this is real. And Jesus loves us and he wants to lead us. He doesn't want to leave us here because this will not satisfy you. He doesn't want you dying on that vine, disconnected from him, not bearing fruit, frustrated and angry and sad and just not fulfilled, no purpose, no peace, all these things, or just running around worrying about things that in the end will not matter. Let's come back to the heart of it all. And so we're produced by connecting to the vine, and so... Relationship is always greater than rules and religion. Relationship with Jesus through his word and through his people. So the fruit of the spirit. You ever thought about those? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I think I got them. Okay. All right. Good job, Aaron. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but if you look at those, they are not really like a specific, like, okay, what's this specific work here? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's not, hey, I, right? I tithed. It's not, so... Even those, it's telling you, these are nature. It's who you are. It's your essence. It's your character. It's how, it's your operating system that then produces specific works. And we love to just go past that and focus on the thing. What is our operating system? 
the spirit or the flesh, right? And so that's always stuck out at me about that. And then when we get to the next part, and so Jesus is setting up, he's pointing everything to the heart. We're abiding in him. We're producing fruit. And these are in nature, not so much a specific action, but they will lead to specific actions. And then what he says next in verse 29 and 30 was interesting. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Like once again, Jesus is not afraid to go there, but in love. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And so I was kind of, when I was looking at this, this seems like a simple passage. It's just like four verses. Okay, thank you, Justin. This should be, and I'm looking at this. Okay, he's pointing it to the heart. He's pointing it to the heart and all these things. And then, now do this action. It seems like this, cut off your hand and, and gouge out your eye. And throw, it's like, how does that go to this? Like, I was a little confused. I don't know if you're confused right now or not. You're like, yeah, Aaron, like, how is he going to pull this off? Like, what is Jesus up to? Like, what is he after? How does that? It seems like a fleshly action and an extreme one at that. What does this have to do with, with anything? And I think there's kind of three overall points to this, and I want to try to bring it together. Okay. Number one, shock value, seriousness of sin. Seriousness of sin. James 1, 14 through 16 says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to something. It gives birth to sin, if not dealt with immediately if not severed, if not cut off, if entertained with the eye, and that can lead to actions and other things, and eventually it has to manifest in some way. And so then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. And then Jesus would point that to There's something even worse after death. Hell. Destruction. And there's this thing like, look, it would be better if you understood this, if you got the ramifications about what you're messing with, about what you're dabbling in, this little pet sin that we think I can tame and I can hold it to the vest, and it's only this much, and it won't ever go past this point. It always goes past that point. When we entertain it, those are lies of the enemy. One more glance, one more look, one more drink, one more this, one more that, like one more flirt, one more smile, one more, like it, it never stops there. And this flesh is, is broken and fallen. It's like, yes, more, and there is a battle waging for you. And so number one is just like, do you get the seriousness of what we are up against? Or do we trivialize it? Oh, God's grace took care of it. He just covered it all. I could just do whatever I want. He's got it. 
no worry, no fighting, no discipline, no anything. It's just, I just go around life just, hey, God's got it. That is not a proper view of God's grace. That is not a proper respect for what God has done on the cross. Should we continue to sin that grace may abound all the more? Paul would say, heaven forbid. Are we going to sin? Yes, we're going to sin. Are we going to stumble? Yes, we're going to stumble. But what's the state of your heart and how do you look at that? Eh, Whatever. And are we trampling underfoot the sovereign grace and mercy of God over and over again, just like, eh, no big deal. No big deal. And so it's serious. Do not be deceived. That's how he ends it with this. It brings forth death in James. Do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. In Galatians 6, 7, banking on that do not be deceived, says do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps and a woman reaps what they sow. Sow to the flesh, we're going to reap fleshly things. But if we sow to the spirit, we're going to reap the spiritual so this is a real battle. He's pointing that out. Matthew six twenty four. you can't serve two masters. Who's your Lord? Who rules? Who's set up on this throne in your heart? You still? The enemy? The flesh? Or Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit? Who's reigning? Who's Lord? So there's an article that I came across, and I'm just going to skim through it and give you certain parts. It was about... I don't know how many of you have heard of this term, okay? Let me know. My little smarty pants is in the room. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Have you ever heard that word? Moralistic therapeutic deism. No? Wow. Let me tell you a little bit about it, okay? So this was an article that I came across, and it's called Moralistic Therapeutic Deism, the New American Religion. Uh, When Christian Smith and his fellow researchers with the National Study of Youth and Religion at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, they did this study, and they took a close look at the religious beliefs held by American teenagers, they found that the faith held and described by most adolescents came down to something the researchers identified as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Well, what is that? It consists of beliefs like these. A... Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. I hope you can see some problems with this. I'm just saying. I mean, if not, we can talk more, and hopefully at the end of the sermon we can see there is grace here. But I would not be like, this is, there is a push in our culture, and it is sweeping through. I mean, this says young, but young and old alike. And so kind of to sum it up, here it says, it's moralistic therapeutic deism is about in, uh, inculcating a moralistic approach to life. It teaches that, this, that central to living a good and happy life is to be a good moral person. The letter of the law, these certain things, but then at the end, it doesn't really even matter that much. That means, but this is how we were going to define that. That means being nice. 
And our Vodi Bakum, I don't know if you heard of Vodi Bakum, he always says, the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. Like that trumps all the other ones now, right? Thou shalt be nice. That means being nice, kind, pleasant, respectful, responsible. And these are all good things. I, like, I agree. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, yes, please, let's not be jerks. Let's love people. Let's be nice. Let's be kind. Let's be responsible. That would be great. You know, that, that, like, I, I'm for all of that. But if this is your belief system disconnected to, oh, we got some problems. A good and happy life is being a good moral person. Taking care of your health, doing best to be successful. Um, I'm going to skip on. So it says, moving to even deeper issues, the researchers claim that moralistic therapeutic deism is colonizing Christianity itself. And with all, you know, um, fair revelation here, this article is pretty old. This has been around for a while. But it's still going strong. It's colonizing Christianity itself. And this new civil religion seduces converts who never have to leave their congregations and Christians' identification as they embrace this new faith and all of its undermining dimensions. And it says, how can you... It says, they argue that the distortion of Christianity has taken root not only in the minds of individuals, but also within the structures of at least some Christian organizations and institutions. And now there's different forms, of, there's different, different things that have been creeping in even, even now in our institutions and our seminaries and all these things. And we're just, we're up against it all over the place. He said, how can you tell the language and therefore experience of, listen to this, of Trinity, holiness, sin, grace, justification, sanctification, church, and heaven and hell. Remember what Jesus just kind of talked about and going to some of these things appear among most Christian teenagers in the United States at the very least to be supplanted by the language of, let's not talk about, it's about happiness, niceness, and an earned heavenly reward. Did you get that? An earned heavenly reward. And so bringing it back to those other verses here, your hand is causing you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. Your eye, pluck it out, throw it away. It's better to go into to heaven maimed than have your whole body thrown into hell. What is he saying? This, this is the other point. It's seeing is serious, but how are you going to fight it? On your own effort, through your own power, through your own strength, trying to win victory over sin by our own power, our own strength, and our own merits, listen to me, will never work. It always falls short and will leave us desperate. It will leave us fractured and exhausted and worn out. Paul says to the Galatians, having begun in the spirit, Are you now going to try to finish and be made perfect through the flesh? We begin in the spirit. This is a work of the spirit that we can't take credit for. That God, through the preaching of the gospel and his word and the truth, that is alive and powerful and cuts through right here, through all the stuff that I just read about. It cuts through all that and it goes to the heart of the conscience. And when we see that it does something, we cry out to him and he comes in, he comes to us and does what only he can do. 
And these dead men and women, we come alive through faith, through the Holy Spirit that he now gives us. Not of our own works, not anything that we could do to earn or put God into our favor. This is how we begin our walk. This is how we will continue our walk. And this is how we will end our walk by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and through the power of his spirit and not in your right arm. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become aware or conscious of our sin and our need for a Savior. And if we try to work this out in this way with these methods on our own strength and our own flesh. Okay, Jesus, I just need to try harder, right? You're saying, oh yeah, this is hard, so I really not need to try not to do these things. So, so, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put all these barriers. I'm going to do all these things. And those things are good. But there's a step before that. If it's not done through the inner working of the spirit with God communing to you through your spirit and his spirit that is leading that out of love for the father, not out of guilt. And I have to do this. I got to try harder. I got to earn God's favor. You will fail. And you'll keep cutting and cutting and cutting. If we put that into practice without the spirit, without the, where would that leave us? Would we even make it? We'd be so many pieces. There'd be nothing left of us. Do you understand that? And that is what actually Jesus is trying to get us to understand and appoint us to. We have a problem and it is a heart problem. Go ahead, go try to work it out in this way and do all you can and try to fight it on your own. And then maybe we can come to the end of ourselves and realize, I can't, I give up. I think about our Mormon brothers and sisters. I think about our Muslim brothers and sisters. I think about the Hindus and the Buddhists. It is all these ways I have to work to try to reach to God and hopefully he will accept my works. Hopefully it will be enough. And they are tired They are exhausted. And they don't have assurance. There is a better way. And that is Jesus is pointing us to the better way. And that's one of the first things that I read this. There has to be a better way. But he wants us to get to the point, you and me today, that we get to the point that we just give up. That we no longer look within, we don't look around, but rather we look up and we cry out in desperation. Like Paul in Romans 7, what a wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? We need an easier yoke. I don't know if you remember Justin talking about that before. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are what? Weary, tired, heavy laden with all these burdens that the religious system have put upon you. There is a better way. Come to me. Let's get that off. Put my yoke upon you. It is light. It is light and it is of the heart and it is of the spirit and it is birthed out of love. The power of God versus the power of man. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we close down.
when we get this, when we get to that point, it's obvious, Lord, the only way out of this is I need a new mind. I need a new heart. I need to be completely transformed and somehow rebooted. I need me 2.0. If only something like that was possible, it would bring so much hope to me and would be such good news. It would be the best news ever. You understand what I'm telling you today about what we have in the gospel message that is good news about who Jesus is and about what he's done that we can never go to him. But guess what God did while we are yet sinners? He emptied the comforts of heaven and he came down on a rescue mission and he came to us. That we could be set Free And I'm just going to end it with this good news and we can worship and close out. Romans 8 says this, 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. Everybody say, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Through him, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Is this good news for you today? Let's worship him with all we have. Stop striving, cease, and come to him and abide in him. Rest in him. Take his yoke upon you remember and reflect on the gospel. Yes, we do have a war to wage. We knew, do need to make no provisions for the flesh. We do need to die daily, but we have tools. We have everything we need for life and godliness through what Jesus Christ has supplied freely from our God. Let's fight that way with his methods, with his power, and we will see his victory in our lives. Amen. God bless you guys.